Hi there. Welcome to yet another Dishcast. Once again, coming to you from the distant shores of Cape Cod, as I wait for my floors to be fully put down in Washington. Um, I had to postpone a, a couple of things and miss a couple of real meetings I wanted to have in DC with some friends. But nonetheless, you know, floors are important and I'm soldiering on up here. Not that it's hard to soldier on up here. It's beautiful. It's just quiet now. It's quite wonderful, actually. We're in trans week, just to let you know, although it's really hard to tell. It used to be called Fantasia. That's changed now. Fantasia used to be, will be known by the locals, by townies, as what we would call, <laughs> this is probably terribly politically incorrect. We call it Tall Ships Week because it would often be a week in which, and these are not trans people, as we usually understood them, but they are straight couples, a man and a woman, but the dude really, really likes to get dressed up as a woman and walk down the street with his wife. This is, this is, this is, this is, it's cross-dressing, which isn't the same thing as being trans, certainly not a thing being gay, but it's definitely there, and you see these couples walking up and down commercial street, and the dude tends to be tall and big and they often have these big frocks as it were these sort of they, they're kind of copying women but haven't quite nailed it and so they look a bit like tall ships coming across the horizon as they go down commercial street and and i'm always fixated by the look on the wives faces which are which is one of stoicism love <laughs> and you sort of hear this inner monologue well i know I know my husband really needs to do this. It makes everything good and I'm going to be here and it's all good. And, and we all, of course, we in P-Town, we will love anybody. We, it's the one place you can come and fly your freak flag and really people will be actually kind of bored by it, which is, which is, a, which is, a, which is a wonderful thing. Anyway, a little digression into the byways of, of, of this weird little ashtray of a town at the end of Cape Cod. This week, however... We're going to do some philosophy and some thinking about big things, as it were, with Matthew Crawford. Now, I came across Matthew a few years ago when I was, I was doing some reading for my book on Christianity, and I was fascinated, and also when I was doing some research on, on the, the challenge of living in an online world. And he's written some books about really how we can live now that renders us not quite as isolated, as, as atomized, and as abstract as we have been. He's a writer and a philosopher. He's currently a senior fellow at UVA's Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. He's a contributing editor at The New Atlantis. He's also written for First Things, and he has his own substack, which you should definitely check out. His most famous book is Shop Class as Soulcraft, an inquiry into the value of work. His substack is called Arcadelia. It's really phenomenal. It covers a whole variety of topics. And we're going to talk about all of them today. And to give you, we have Pamela Paul coming up from the New York Times, formerly running the New York Times Book Review, now an op-ed columnist. And we have David Brooks. You don't you know who David Brooks is, uh, Brooks is, and he's going to talk about how to know a person, the art of seeing dollars deeply and being deeply seen. And Spencer Claven, a young, kind of reactionary, interesting character who's written How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises, and John Judas and Risha Shera, 
my old friend John B. Judas of the New Republic, old school social Democrat, I would call him, called Where Have All the Democrats Gone? A really smart interrogation of what's happened to the Democratic Party. Anyway, we're here today with Matthew. Matthew, thanks so much for agreeing to come on this 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 grueling podcast. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this, Andrew. Thanks a lot for, for the invitation. Well, tell me, first of all, because we always start like this, is tell me where you were born and grew up. So I was born in Berkeley and spent my early years there. My dad was a physics professor at Cal and a jazz musician. And he got me playing saxophone at an early age. I played in the Malcolm X Jazz Band. That was my school. Excellent. Your school was Malcolm X School? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, yeah, they give I guess in Berkeley indication of yeah of its kind of, essential orientation. Yeah, and then I was out of school for about five years. And finally, came back and went to Berkeley High. Why were you out of school for five years? So, <laughs> I was living in an ashram. Do you know what that is? Well, yes, I, I roughly know what it is. I imagine yeah. it's a, a community of people meditating together and normally centered around some kind of guru. Yeah, precisely. So, so yeah, I so the guru, in this case, his name was Muktananda. He would typically spend about six months in a place and pick up and move, sort of evangelizing that way. There was the mothership back in India, so we'd go back there periodically so it was a life of, you know, it was it was not like sort of Rajneeshi, you know, people have this image of a kind of loosey-goosey hippie existence. It was, it was almost the opposite of that. It was extremely structured and rigorous. You know, you'd get up at 4.30 in the morning, go to bed about 10, and in the interval, you were either working or chanting. That was the whole day. So it was the recitation of these Sanskrit texts that went on for hours. Men and women were quite segregated. Uh, Go ahead. So it was as a kind of form of meditation, the chanting, in a way. It's a way of, is that, is that, am I interpreting that correctly? Sure. It, I mean, there was a sort of meditation proper as well, but it was not nearly as much of the day. So how did you get entangled in this? How old were you when you went to, when you left Malcolm X and went to the ashram? Yeah. So my involvement with it was from about age nine to 16 and out of school, I would say from 10 to 15. That's a huge part of your education gone. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was quite formative, I guess. How did you cope when you got back? Well, the reason I left the ashram was precisely because I wanted to go to high school, because I had this image of American high school as this great bacchanal. And I wanted, I wanted part of that. It was a little disappointing on that front. But so I'm just trying to figure out how at nine years old did you go? It must have been your parents, right? Yeah. My, so my parents split up, I guess I was about eight years old and my mom sort of brought, my mom was one of these seeker types you know, pretty much every iteration of the human potential movement she was involved in, you know, from Esalen to Est. And so this guru was sort of one stop along the way. I mean, the most, by far the most substantial stop. 
So she brought me and my sister along. Yeah, it was a kind of itinerant life of living with this group of people moving around. I mean, how did you make up for your schoolwork when you went back at 16? There really, there really wasn't anything to make up. I mean, really, I don't think you really learn that much in school. I mean, I did a couple of correspondence courses, I think literally like two for math. But other than that, you know, I was learning these arcane Sanskrit scriptures and, you know, memorizing <laughs> all kinds of, you know, that, you know, Hindu stuff, this which I guess Hindu, trained... Hindu I, rather than Buddhist. Yeah, yeah, okay. Hindu. So I guess that trained my brain and it was quite, again, quite quite rigorous. The content of it is all gone, but I think I acquired the habits and maybe a taste for a scholarly life that way. Hmm. So you come back to high school, you've had this experience. Is your spiritual life, does it change dramatically or does it disappear? Or what happens to your mom? I'm just <laughs> fill me in here. Yeah. So actually one of the, 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 the great things about the ashram was precisely getting away from my mother. So I lived, you know, in a room, usually you'd have, you know, three or four roommates. And again, sort of men and women were fairly segregated with different forms of work. And so I really had very little to do with my mom from about age 10 onward, which suited me quite, quite well. And I mentioned the work. So when I was, let's say I was just about to turn 14, the group picked up and moved to Miami Beach. This would have been 1979. And they needed, they were recruiting for the advance crew. They'd go ahead and sort of prepare the, you know, they'd bought a, a hotel right on the beach to sort of fix up and, and be our home for a while. And in 1979, Miami Beach is totally depressed, right? It's just nothing like... Um, what it is today. So in any case, they uh, recruited me to go with the advance crew. And what I ended up doing was electrical work. They needed someone small enough that they could get up into the crawl space um, to lay some conduit. So that's how I started doing electrical work, which ended up serving me well for, for many years. I sort of did that off and on uh, all through high school and college. You were a part-time electrician? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's how you paid your way through college as well? Yeah, it certainly helped. I'd do it during the summers. You have to understand that. Yeah, so I went to UC Santa Barbara, and I think tuition was $800 per term. And my dad helped me out with it. But yeah, it was just, it was just nothing like the, the expense that people incur today. And what did you study in, in college? Physics. Oh, I see. So you were becoming interested in how things work. Yeah. Yeah. Physics afforded certain intellectual pleasures that were really quite amazing. You know, when you sort of, I remember there was this one class, <clears throat> it was an upper division sequence on electricity and magnetism. And there came this moment, it was like at the end of a week long series of, you know, math on the blackboard and in this sort of crescendo moment I realized that we had just derived Maxwell's equations, which was the fundamental sort of description of how electricity and magnetism are in fact the same phenomena. 
and the, the professor had not broadcast ahead of time that this is what we were doing. It's just, it, it came, you know, the, the final step on the blackboard was this familiar equation. And we had gotten there by talking about, you know, light. So it was this, it was one of those kind of moments of intellectual pleasure that really stands out. And so what did you do with your, your career then? How, when you left college, what did you set out to do? Well, I worked in construction the following summer doing electrical and other stuff. And then I moved down to L.A. to look for work in aerospace. But this was 1989. You know, the Cold War is ending. The defense contractors are all laying off. So I couldn't get a job. Uh, so after about six months, all my savings were gone. And I ended up going around the parking lot of a home improvement store, putting little flyers on the windshields of cars to advertise my services as an electrician. And the flyers said, unlicensed, but careful. <laughs> and it generated- I would, I would not. I would not you know? hire you with that. But anyway, you apparently some suckers did. And they were yeah. probably happy, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of demand. So there was clearly more demand for doing this than for my services as a credentialed physicist. So I did that for a while, illegally. Did you ever think about getting licensed or getting a... Yeah, I did. I mean, the, the bureaucratic hurdle, I just, any kind of step that requires interacting with bureaucracy, I, I just like almost a physical aversion to, so... It has to be a real. Go ahead. You, one thing I get from your writing is you, the word administration kind of triggers you in a way. The idea that, that as a human being, one has to jump through various administrative hoops just to get to where you started from is is a theme in your work. Yeah, yeah, it is, and you know, I, probably I am more reactive against this than, than the typical person, maybe a little bit of an outlier. But I do think that we all have this subterranean sense of sort of the vitality of life being compromised by the need to kind of submit to this invisible type of authority. I mean, Hannah Arendt talked about the rule of nobody when she's talking about bureaucracy. So there's no one you can grab by the collar and demand to get an account from. It's unaccountable power. And if you have any kind of spiritedness, I think this really chafes against you. And my sense is that populism is really is this kind of ornery political energy that I sometimes wonder if at its core is these experiences of being ruled in this unaccountable way. Yes, you, you suddenly discover there are agencies around requiring you to do things before you can do what you want to do, or ha hounding you with every single possible externality, regulation, et cetera, et cetera. And it just kind of slowly deadens the soul after a while and there is this yearning to this like oh fuck it i'm gonna i'm gonna chop down this tree and no one can stop me <laughs> feel and that that's part of what you describe here as a kind of revolt against the the tyranny of administrators 
Yeah. So, and so Christopher Lash is an author I've gotten very interested in the last, I don't know, five or 10 years. And he, you know, he's, he's an historian and he talks, well, he talks about a lot of things, but one is this kind of growth of this compulsion to supervise all these domains of life that were previously left alone. So children's play, for example. Um, so I, I have this nice quote from Tocqueville I want to read. Um, so he's talking about 19th century America. He says, children and their games are wont to submit to rules which they have themselves established and to punish misdemeanors which they have themselves defined. Um, the same spirit pervades every act of social life. So Lash points out that these unsupervised games and rituals of children in the 19th century started to get sort of gathered into this project of, of supervision and study, right? So there's a kind of scientific study of childhood. And this is at the same time as you know, the expansion of extracurricular activities in schools, which is sort of, you know, sort of kids previously left to their own devices playing stickball or whatever, organizing, you know, baseball games. This is all kind of turned into a learning experience and subject to uh, pedagogic sort of mediation. And this last shows that this is part of this wider pattern of domains of life being subject to systematic study and control. So that's the time of the birth of home economics the um, study of childhood development, social work. So the intimate and the spontaneous become subject to therapeutic you know, mediation in the service of various social goods. So if you think of the life world, uh, that's a term from phenomenology, and it means sort of the background patterns of life that are just taken for granted and within which you can dwell unmolested, so here's a new determination to leave nothing taken for granted, nothing unstudied. And what that meant in practice was the sort of colonization of the life world by organized expertise, which corresponds to institutional money and power. The, the ability of humans to actually live as we have lived overwhelmingly for most of our experience without that kind of micromanagement from above I mean, one of the things that we've discovered that, that you mentioned with the play of children is that there be, I think it was a study out just the other day that the related increasing dysfunction, mental illness, depression, anxiety to the removal from children of their own autonomy at a very early age to ensure safety as opposed yeah. to their own world creating. And I, 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 and, and it does kind of rob children of the ability to grow up, really, or to become themselves, to ex exercise agency as, a, as sort of young adults in a way. But we were, I remember when we would play in the, the fields or the woods and we would have elaborate little games that we would organize together. There was some sense of accomplishment afterwards. There was also a sense that this is ours. You can't touch it. Mm -hmm. And we know what we're doing, and the kids in the, the street that before us had this game, and we blah, 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 blah. So there was no looking outside to other people. It was very right. much our own world, which we enjoyed and which we set up. And now less, right? The parents are 
intimately involved in in determining if they're bringing up their kids right, which was also another thing that I don't think my grandparents had any idea what it was to bring up kids. They just, they just brought them up. And my, my own parents had no, they weren't, didn't read Dr. Spock or any of this other stuff. They, they, they just winged it. There's that great scene in Mad Men, one of the early episodes where the, you know, it's a family scene as chaotic as the kids running around and, and the, the, the mother is smoking a cigarette, which, already you know that's awesome (laughs) and then the kids are playing with a dry cleaning bag you know which today is is, has all these warnings you know keep away from children because they can suffocate and she says stop playing with that and her concern is that her clothes are going to get wrinkled exactly (laughs) so there's a kind of there's also a sense that the, the kids have to defer to adult desires and wishes and views at some point you are not the center of the universe. And I think, so inevitably we're, we're letting kids know early on that you are the center, that you can decide whatever you want. You, there's no laws you have to adhere to or, or, or submit to. There's no reality you have to defer to. There's no given that you have to adapt yourself to. You can be whoever you want to be. And part of, is that, is that just the sort of origin of some of our dysfunction? I do think we're in a sort of deepening reality crisis, you might call it, where the very sense that there is an external reality that is impervious to your, you know, wishes and, you know, to your kind of desire for psychic comfort, that we're very uncomfortable with that and sort of do everything we can to hold at bay any kind of confrontation with a reality that compromises our sort of self-affirmations. So, I mean, this, this shows up in, in all kinds of ways. And one of them, I think, is this safetyism, which is the environment that, that kids are, are brought up in. And one way you make kids safe is by kind of fully subjecting to rational control the world that they live in. And I think, one thing that does is it makes your own powers of making sense of the world kind of superfluous or even disqualified because, you know, you're not an expert. Um, it's so common... like living your life with a GPS system. That you've, that yeah. Instead of actually figuring your way around a town and, and remembering things and then slowly over a period of time knowing where to get from here to there because you were intimately familiar with the place you get to know. The place is how human beings lived forever. <laughs> now you just plug in a, you get in your car, you plug in a destination. It tells you, you don't even have to think about where you're going. And is that sort of a denial in some ways of our humanity or is it just a sane? I mean, one of the obvious objections to what you're saying is, look, we need to. We're a complicated society. We want to take care. We don't want to have children dying by suffocating. We don't want them falling into streams and drowning. And we need to organize things. We need to regulate the environment. We need to make sure you don't just put up some monstrous house where you, where you, where you care. I mean, there are lots of reasons why we have to. Now, how would you respond to that? That these things are, you know, I think you'd probably say up to a point, right? Which, after which things get really surreal. Yeah, I mean, all those things are obviously true, but I think we have gotten to a point of you know this weird fetish of of control that really slips the bonds of any kind of you know realistic calculation of of cost and benefit. It becomes a 
a sort of fetish. And, you know, obviously safety is good. I have kids of my own. I'm certainly very concerned with their safety. But what doesn't get articulated is the cost of trying to sort of remove all contingency and hazard from the world. So there's this great thinker named Johan Huizinga, the Dutch historian who sort of an anthropologist, really, who, who wrote this book called Homo Luden, so Man the Player. So it's, it's an account of play as the basis of civilization. And one thing he says is that the spirit of play is one of enduring tension and uncertainty at the outcome. Something is at stake and the outcome is is not given. And in light of that, you can see that our kind of spirit of rational control is at odds with the spirit of play and, and tends to crowd out those spaces where, you know, you can hurt yourself and you can also enter into this agonistic sort of rivalry with others that is tends to have this quality of being both loving and rivalrous, kind of attack and friendship at once. It's a wonderful thing. Oakshot has my own philosophical interest as an interesting description in which he compares a regular tennis match with a friendly tennis match. The friendly, you're just hitting it back over the net. In fact, you kind of don't want to defeat your opponent totally because you want to keep the rally going or you want to just have a good time with him. On the other hand, we move it to a set of rules in which things really matter and you care about winning as opposed to this is this is this this critical distinction. You do care about winning when you're in a game, but essentially you care more about playing than you do about winning. That's the key to homo ludens in a way. It's it's an it's a form of freedom. It's a freedom from from practical exigency. It's a, it's 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 a, it's a it's a pure freedom, and it's a way in which humans interact with each other on a very equal level, according to kind of mysterious rules in a way, sometimes explicit, sometimes implicit, that teaches us how to be with one another in a free mm-hmm. society. In a free society, the play is kind of critical in some ways preparation for being a citizen in a society where everyone's different. Yeah, that's good. It's, as you mentioned, it's the, everyone is equal in a sense because we're submitting to a set of rules. There's a game that has a kind of bounded field of play, but it's not egalitarian, right? It's the opposite of that. It's, it's about the pursuit of excellence and, you know, to prevail. So it, it has this nice quality of, of you know, well, Huizinga says it's the origins of social order really lie with play, precisely because you have to have rules. You can play a game knowing that you can play another game afterwards. You could even play it with the same team and come to a different result. The mm-hmm. point is you're not trying to settle this once and for all. The right. point is you're entering, entering into a relationship with others that is, that is yeah. full of spontaneity but also is a showcase for some people being better than others. If some person keeps winning a game because they have superior physical strength, they'll become known for that. And it seemed to me that previous societies understood this very well. That's why they were very keen on letting children do what they wanted to do and also keen on getting them into team sports that would help them develop their own sense of being both part of something that has no fixed end 
but does require really close cooperation and integration with your fellow human. Right. And of course, that requires risking humiliation and defeat and failure, without which, you know, how, how are you going to achieve any kind of resilience? I mean, people are talking about this now. I think this is becoming a sort of conventional point, which is great. I mean, it is of- great. I mean, Lash was talking about this 30 years ago. And but we are now dealing with the consequences, the, the late adult term consequences of denying children this kind of ability. But your critique is broader than that. It's a, the, the, the sort of a, our society is constructed against the human in a way, or it's devaluing the human. And you, you have this idea that we have, we have forms of anti-humanism at work in our culture. And how would you, I just wanted you to unpack that a little bit. What, what are these anti-humanist ideas that are everywhere that we don't even see quite as we should? Well, some of it comes out of social science. So, you know, one of the hugely influential movements of the last 20 years has been behavioral economics, which has been massively institutionalized. The nudge, so you listeners have probably heard of the nudge. So the premise there is that human beings are terrible reasoners. We're, you know, our, our reasoning is guided by sort of pre-reflective biases and heuristics. And so this becomes the premise for, you know, a system of, of social management, sort of nudging people that is sort of steering their behavior beneath the threshold of conscious awareness. So in a sense, it's a you know, it's a more realistic picture of the human mind than we had previously with the kind of naive, rational market actor picture of, you know, utility maximizing homo economicus. No one believes that anymore. So it's a more psychologically informed picture, but it's, it's, you know, one version of that that you might, that might've been taken up would be a kind of Burkean version, a sort of sober-minded one that says, well, okay, human beings don't sort of reason out uh, what they need to do each morning from first principles because we're not very good at that anyway. So um, inherited practices and tradition provide a kind of framing sort of scaffolding for individual cognition. But no, that's not at all what the sort sort of lesson learned was. It was that we need a kind of separate class of conditioners, to use C.S. Lewis's term, who will kind of steer the populace according to a vision that is really theirs alone. Give us an example of that, if you could, of the conditioners operating on our society in a way that we're not fully conscious of. Well, the most benign example and, you know, all for the good would be the one they like to talk about, which is how do you increase the savings rate? Um, People don't save money and they should. So simply by changing from an opt in 401k, I mean, sorry, from, yeah, from opt out, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) From opt in to opt out, make the, make the default that people's paychecks get, you know, shunted into their savings. And this has a big effect on increasing the savings rate without coercing anybody to do anything. So it's a kind of nudge toward virtue in a sense. I mean, it's like frugality, but it doesn't require any effort on the person. It's a kind of systemic 
frugality, something like that. And is that the problem that it's coming no. onto people? It's not being originating from them themselves? Well, this gets this gets tricky because let's say instead of, you know, cast sunsting nudging you to save money in that way, you're back in I don't know, 19th century whatever, Switzerland or America, and you have a, a Protestant ethic that enjoins frugality. So if you were to take that that person living in a sort of Calvinistic society and transport them into, you know, I don't know, Tahiti or something, some luxuriant, a very different milieu, would all that sort of virtue of frugality, would it just completely collapse? In other words, even in that sort of socially bootstrapped version from long ago, there is a kind of external scaffolding for virtue. So I don't know that really the, the important point to criticize the nudge here is, is sort of being external rather than internal, but rather that this becomes a technology of social management that can be turned to all kinds of purposes. So the benign examples, the one we just talked about, increasing the savings rate, more contentious application of it might be to try to, um, you know, steer the population away from, you know, disinformation or something, which is a, a very, you know, it's a term that's come to stand for all kinds of sort of epistemic massaging of the populace. Yeah. And I, I take that point. On the other hand, you also look at something less talk about like social media and disinformation you also have the fact that these networks have been set up with nudges in them as yeah, well right to nudge you towards more emotive yeah. violent aggressive things that get your blood pressure up things that will trigger flight or fight this stuff is we're already being nudged in a kind of anti-social direction by by these by, by social media, essentially, by algorithms in social media that are designed by, by these people to keep you obsessed and looking at the same thing, which requires a certain level of... So what I'm trying to say is there are nudges all over the place. Some of them are coming from private actors. Some of them are coming from public actors. There's the, 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 this idea that maybe you could have a, a much freer world of society might be a little naive at this point in time. Maybe we've just moved past that. We can't reconstitute that yeah that's a great point that's the i mean the whole architecture of what's called uh, well choice architecture sort of installed to sort of nudge people in these ways probably more of it happening in the private sector than from government right. so as you as you mentioned the engagement algorithms as they're called to the point of them is to maximize time on device that's the right the term of art and right. you do that by getting people pissed off right so it's a kind of outrage generating mechanism right yeah there's a fascinating book called addiction by design mm. by natasha dow Scholl. she's an anthropologist so she spent time a lot of time in las vegas talking to compulsive gamblers and the gambling well, the gaming industry as they call it is also free-spirited yeah, not. I mean, people will stand there at a slot machine for 10 or 12 hours at a stretch, urinate on themselves because it, they get into this zone. Yeah. It's a kind of complete fixation. 
And the, the, the designers of these slot machines very self-consciously talk about their goal as being to get the, the person to play to extinction. That's the term of art. Wow. That means they have no more money left. And some of the same personnel involved in that industry were then involved in designing the social media apps. Yep. There's something called the Stanford Persuasive Design Laboratory, which is a kind of Orwellian sound. You always come up with these horrifying terms that seem to be sort of screaming Orwell at you. You, I want to focus on this anti-humanism because you, you had this rather beautiful essay in First Things. I'm going to quote you something that you wrote, which I think is, is maybe can, can get this further out. The four anti-humanisms you wrote, as I see it, are these. Human beings are stupid, we are obsolete, we are fragile, and we are hateful. Maybe you could unpack, first of all, the stupid stuff. Well, that's what we've just been talking about, right. the, the, the premise that human beings are very poor reasoners, and so we may as well just kind of create a, a choice architecture that to, to steer them according to some social good, as we can see. Of course, human beings doing that as well. Yeah, right. So they exempt themselves right, from their of own course, premises. Of course. And well, that's, you know, you're Cass Sunstein. Yeah. <laughs> What's you do? And I think that that sort of special pleading on behalf right. of the conditioners is is typical and it's it's crucial to notice. What about notice. humans being obsolete? How we how how yeah. does our culture Well, so one example is self-driving cars. So, you know, it's there's first thing to know is that there is very little consumer for demand for this. It's very much a top-down project. And the refrain is human beings are terrible drivers. In fact, we're actually pretty good at driving. And the, the prospect of driverless cars being able to do as well as human beings is actually quite dim. This is, this is just kind of coming to light in the last five years. The engineering challenge of getting driverless cars to share the road with human drivers, that's the big challenge. So in order to sort of make the world more hospitable to driverless cars, you essentially have to make it illegal for, for humans to drive their own cars. And all of this begins to look like an expensive solution to a non-problem. Um, but there's a kind of, uh, you know, halo of progress and inevitability that's always invoked. You know, this is, this is the way things must go. Because humans, as we have always been, have to be replaced because we are just yeah. not good enough at being human. Yeah. So that I think that becomes a kind of, you know, well, it's hard to say. This is a genuine question for me, whether this is just a cynical kind of hype, mode of hype to sort of clear, clear away resistance to the program, in this case, you know, making giving cities over to driverless cars or is it a sincerely held kind of anthropology that thinks of human beings as the weak link in the system and i think i live in silicon valley now and there are people here who who genuinely believe that human beings are this kind of like joke that needs to be cleared away you know so that, that there is a real well, the whole transhumanist thing, which is huge out here, is kind of the the most crystalline 
uh, version of that. And by that, you mean, let's say, someone could be, let's, instead of having a human being, you could have an AI version of a human being that could replicate their thoughts, whatever. They could also be eternal because they obviously don't die. Is that what you're talking about? Well, I'm thinking more of this fantasy that we're going to be able to upload our consciousness to the cloud and escape the limitations of the body and of mortality. The body, I think, in this worldview is, shows up as this kind of filthy, unfortunate set of limitations on the will. So there's a, a sort of hankering to escape anything that impinges upon the free will. And this is, you know, this is kind of a cartoon exaggeration of something you can find in Kant. So we could talk about that. Right. But it is, it is this, there is a kind of distrust of the body insofar as it is, is telling you to do things and it's, it's controlling your mind in some ways because it is something you can't live outside of. You see this, I mean, you definitely see this in some ways in this trans debate where, yeah. where the notion that you can, and again, this is what they actually have in the kiddie books they give to kindergartners now. They say, you can be a boy or a girl or both or neither or something else entirely. You're telling that to four or five, six-year-olds. And that's an extraordinary statement to tell children that they can just recreate their bodies, recreate their mind, do whatever they feel like according to some innate sense of who they are as opposed to, which they then have to imagine or come up with. Most people, most people, four-year-olds, haven't thought, thought about that so much. But that's an incredible, in some ways, burden to put on children. It's also a deeply misleading one. I mean, you see this in some ways with, like, for example, just in the mildest form, you have cosmetic surgery, which is designed to change everybody's face. You then have, you know, a whole variety of body changing aspects, steroids, slimming devices, Wigovi, you name it. We are, we are creating our bodies as the perfect body we want, essentially. We're told that too. We're not told to love what we have, really, or to make the best of it. Yeah. Or am I, am I, I'm not, am no, I on this that? all sounds right to me. I want to pick up on one thing you said, which is the burden this places on kids of having to, I mean, the most fundamental thing here is presented to them as unsettled, right. which means that you have to, <laughs> you have to, to make this existential choice or decision as a kid, which seems hugely anxiety provoking. I mean, the way, you know, sort of the natural course of things is you grow up in a family, hopefully you have both a mother and a father. This sort of gender comes into view in this sort of organic way as not just an expression of biology, but also of all kinds of cultural practices that get passed along. And it's just... It, that's your life world. It doesn't have to be interrogated. You know, a lot of this this business with with gender is like the there's this compulsion to trouble gender. To to use the title of Judith Butler's book, it's almost like modern art, right? The point is to make us uncomfortable and unsettled. Well, that's a deeply fucked up thing to do to kids, I think. 
Yeah, so that's what they mean by queering things, is that right. you render any settled idea of what is to be suspect and to be interrogatable, as it were. And in fact, that's the key thing. But there was this Sorry, go on, you were saying. Well, yeah, and so, right, when you make everything sort of interrogatable and sort of contingent in that way, what does that do? It opens it to manipulation, right, with, with propaganda. The, the idea of nature has always been a radical idea because it's the, it's the opposite of convention, so going back to the ancient Greeks, you know, who discovered the idea of nature. Hi there. And it had this. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N. And make sure your podcast is up to date with the Dishcast. You'll be able to add it to your Dishcast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you, too, for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money, and you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate, join the fun, subscribe.